Thank you, praise team, for that encouraging time of worship. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We use the term famous last words. Often we pay a lot of attention to the last thing that somebody says. Often we remember their last words because we place significance on that. I, know, I wrote down some uh, last words that have been recorded over history. 12th century philosopher Peter Abelard's last words were, I don't know. Actress Tallulah Bankhead, Codeine Bourbon. Henry Ward Beecher's last words were, Now comes the mystery. Ludwig von Beethoven's last words were, Friends applaud, the comedy is over. Luther Burbank, American horticulturist's last words were, I don't feel good. Douglas Fairbanks said, never felt better. H.G. Wells said, I'm all right. P.T. Barnum said, how were the circus receipts in Madison Square Garden? Bing Crosby, whose doctor told him to only play nine holes, played 18. Before he dropped dead of a heart attack, he said, that was a great game of golf, fellers. Union General John Sedgwick at the Battle of Spotsylvania in 1864 said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dis... <laughs> Pancho Villa said, don't let it in like this. Tell them I said something. And that kind of reflects the way we feel about last words. Tell them I said something profound. But you know, if you have never said anything profound in your whole life, the chances are that right before you die, you're not going to say anything profound. For the person who has no faith and therefore no hope, there's really nothing profound to say. And so their reaction to death is for the most part predictable. Woody Allen said, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. At her deathbed, when her housekeeper began to pray aloud, Joan Crawford's last words were, damn it, don't you dare ask God to help me. John Wayne in an interview with Barbara Walters on ABC in 1979 said he had difficulty looking at his old movies. And he said, quote, it's kind of irritating to see I was a good-looking 40-year-old and then I look in the mirror and I see this 71-year-old. I'm not squawking. I just want to be around for a long time. Well, those are typical responses in the face of death. That's predictable. But for the Christian, our response should be very different. Our response should not be typical. Someone has said death is not a period at the end of the sentence of life. It's a conjunction connecting us with the life to come. 
D.L. Moody said on his deathbed, earth is receding, heaven is approaching, this is my crowning day. And that's exactly what it is for the person of faith. It's a highlight. It is graduation day. And so this morning, let me ask you a question. Are you ready to die? Are you confident in the face of death? In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 to 22, we see three individuals who acted by faith in the face of death. Notice as I read them. Verse 20, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. The writer chooses incidents toward the end of the lives of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph to illustrate faith. And so here we have three examples of faith in the face of death. Now the original readers of this letter were Jewish. They were Hebrew. And so they were very familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. So he could just mention these little verses, these little notes of these events, and they knew all about these events. They knew all the details. We may or may not know all the details about these stories, so I want to take us back to the Old Testament this morning and refresh our memory. And we're going to look at these three individuals. We're going to begin with Isaac. It says in verse 20, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau even regarding things to come. Now what did Isaac do? He passed on the promises regarding things to come to his sons. Now Abraham had been promised really three things. He had been promised the land. He had been promised that he would be a great nation. And then he was promised that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham did not see the promises fulfilled, but he passed them on to Isaac. Isaac didn't see them fulfilled either, but he passed them on to Jacob. Jacob didn't see them fulfilled, but he passed them on to Joseph and particularly to its two sons. And Joseph didn't see them fulfilled either, but he showed confidence in them and relayed that confidence to his brothers as he died. Now, Isaac lived longer than any of the four great patriarchs, and yet less is written about him, less is recorded about him than any of the others. If you will look in the Old Testament Scriptures, you'll find that Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph each got about 12 chapters each. Isaac, apart from a few mentions before and a few after, got only two chapters. Genesis 26 and 27. He is the son of a prominent father who became the father of a prominent son. He's kind of stuck in between these two prominent individuals, Abraham and Jacob, and that's Isaac. Now Isaac, of course, was the promised son to Abraham and Sarah. And when he was 40 years old, Abraham said, this boy needs a wife. And so he sent his servant to get Isaac a wife and he got him Rebekah. And if you'll turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 25, we're going to have a little Bible study here. Genesis chapter 25. 
and verse 21. It says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. Rebekah was barren just like Sarah had been barren. And we know she was barren for 20 years because verse 26 tells us that Isaac is now 60 years old. And so he prays for her and she conceives. Verse 22, But the children struggled together within her and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She had twins. Now, having a baby looks painful to me, but having twins is something beyond that. And, and these babies were not just kicking in the womb. It says they were struggling with each other. And this is prior to epidurals. And so she's in great pain. And this phrase that she uses here is kind of an obscure Hebrew phrase, but, but it literally means, why am I still living? If it hurts, have you ever said that, giving birth? No, it hurts so much. Why am I still living? And then verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now it was customary in that day that the oldest son would be the spiritual leader of the family, but here God reverses that and says you're going to have twins and the, the twist is going to be that the older will serve the younger. Verse 24, When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Esau means red, so if he was around today, his name would be Red. Verse 26, And afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. She gave birth and it was kind of a photo finish. Esau comes out first and then here's Jacob and he's literally holding on to Esau's heel as he comes out. And that's what his name means, holding on to the heel. And that was symbolic of the fact that he would be grasping after Esau's birthright throughout his life. And then look at verse 27. It says, and the, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Esau was a hunter. He was an outdoorsman. He was a man's man. Jacob was a peaceful man. He was kind of domesticated. He was a mama's boy. And then verse 28 says, Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, if you want an equation for a dysfunctional family, this is it. Dad loved one son, mom loved the other son. And you've got lots of problems here. But what I find interesting is it tells us why Isaac loved Esau. Interesting reason. It wasn't because he was a nicer guy. It says he loved Esau because he had a taste for game. He loved to eat meat, and Esau loved to bring it home. So he said, that's the boy I love. 
You know, sometimes we think of these patriarchs as super spiritual holy men. That's really not the case. We go back and look carefully. I mean, Isaac here was a materialistic, fleshly, selfish, crusty old man who just loved a good meal. And he chose to love the son who helped him fulfill his lustful desires. And then look at verse 29. It says, And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Now there's Jacob. He's diddling around the house. He's cooking. And Esau comes home from hunting and he's made some stew. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there because I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. He comes in, sees the stew and says, Give me some of that red stuff. And it's not recorded here, but I'm sure Jacob said, that is not red stuff. You know, that is lamb etouffee or something. But you know, Esau takes after his dad. His dad loves to eat. He comes home. Give me some of that red stuff. I'm, I'm famished. And then look at verse 30 or verse 31. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Now what was the birthright? That was the right that went to the oldest son. The birthright really meant double the material inheritance. And spiritually, it meant that you were the spiritual leader of that family. So Jacob says, give me your birthright. In verse 32, Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So what use is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose up and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And that verse 34 just kind of summarizes it. He, he ate, drank, rose up, and went his way like nothing had really happened. He just despised the, the birthright. And when we get to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16, we're going to read about Esau, that he was an immoral and godless man. And so we see that God had promised to bless the younger Jacob. We also see that Esau had sold his birthright anyway. And with that in mind, I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis 27 and verse 1. It says, Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. And Isaac said, Behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. That's a pretty crass individual. He, he's about to die, and what does he want? He wants a nice meal before he dies. He wants to fill his stomach before he dies. Do you want to you know something revealing? He lived more than 40 more years. So he's not really dying, and he knows he's not dying. What he's doing here is he, number one, wants a good meal. But number two, he wants to secretly bless Esau in this situation. Surely his wife has told him the prophecy God told her that the older will serve the younger. Surely Jacob has told him 
that Esau sold me the birthright, but he's sneaking around and conniving and he's saying, I want you to come in here and I'm going to bless you with the blessing because you are my favorite son. Verse 5, and Rebekah was listening. Doesn't that happen all the time? He's got his little plan and she's got her ear at the door. Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. I'm going to give you our plan. And here's her strategy. And we see that she's deceitful as well. She says, go now to the flock and bring me two choice kids from there that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father such as he loves. Go get two goats from the flock and I'll make a dish. And then it says again that your father loves. I mean, it's interesting that throughout this chapter, the major testimony about Isaac is that he loved to eat. And then verse 10 says, then you shall bring it to your father that he may eat so that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob answered his mother. Now this was Jacob's opportunity to stop the whole charade. He could have said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to trust God with this situation. But that's not what he does. And I've heard people say, well, Jacob was really just being submissive to his mother in this situation. Well, if you'll figure out the math in this, this guy's 77 years old. So it's, he's long past being a mama's boy at this point. He, he's not being submissive to mommy in the home in this situation. He should have stood up for himself, but he didn't do so. And instead, what he did was, he says, verse 11, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, then I shall be a deceiver in his sight, and I shall bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. I'm afraid my father will touch me and realize it's me, and instead of blessing me, he's going to curse me. And Rebecca says, verse 13, Your curse be on me, my son, only obey my voice and go get them for me. If he curses you, that curse will fall on me. Verse 14, so he went and got them and brought them to his mother and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. She got Esau's best clothes. And the reason she had to get Esau's clothes is because they had the scent of Esau. This was before right guard. You kind of smell somebody coming in that day. Verse 16, and she put the skins of the kids on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Now just imagine this. He's got Esau's clothes on. He's got goat's hair around his neck and on his hands. He looks like he's dressed up for Halloween like a werewolf. And then verse 17, she also gave him the savory food and the bread which she had made to she had made to her son Jacob. Then he came to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? When he hears his voice, he says, That's not Esau's voice. That's Jacob's voice. And we're going to see that when we get down a few verses to verse 22. So he says, Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, 
I am Esau, your firstborn. Now there's lie number one. And then verse 20, And Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have, you have it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. There's lie number two, and this time what does he do? He drags God into it. His dad says, well, how did you get out and hunt these animals and get them home and cook them so fast? Well, God blessed me in my endeavor. And then the next verse says, verse 21, Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. Now, the interesting thing in this family is nobody trusted anybody in this family. He says, I'm Esau. He says, come over here so I can touch you, so I can tell. This was a totally dysfunctional family as we look at it. And then verse 22, So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Now that's one hairy guy. He comes over and his dad touches goat's hair and says, That's my boy. And then verse 23, And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. And then verse 24, he says, Are you really my son Esau? And he lies again and he says, I am. And so he said, Bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him and he ate. He also brought him wine and he drank. You know, he said, I, I, I kind of have some doubts. But boy, that food smells good. So bring it over here and I'll eat the food and I'll bless you. Verse 26, Then his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, I told you, he blessed him. He came over and kissed him. He said, That's Esau. And he blessed him. And notice his blessing, verse 27. See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now, I guess that's a compliment. You smell like a field that the Lord has blessed. What's a field smell like that the Lord has blessed? Well, I'm guessing that it smells well fertilized. You smell good. You smell like a fertilized field. And then verse 28, Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. And then verse 30 says, Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. Then he also made savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's gain that you may bless me. Verse 32, And Isaac his father said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. I thought we already did this. Who are you? And verse 33, Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? And then I think there's a pause right there. Who was that that just came in? Who was it that I just blessed? And he realized that it was Jacob. 
he realized that that was God's plan all along. And here's his real statement of faith in this whole situation at the end of verse 33. He says, yes, and he shall be blessed. I just blessed Jacob by mistake, but it's going to stand. And that's his statement of faith. And then if you read verses 34 to 40, you'll find that Esau cries and Isaac agrees to give him a lesser blessing. But it's really not a blessing at all. It's really more of a curse. In fact, if you look at verse 40, it says, uh, and by your sword you shall live and your brother you shall serve. And so he gets a blessing in essence, but it's not really a blessing. It's, it's, it's going to be that he's going to serve his younger brother. Now, this is one of those stories in Scripture that really is not flattering to anybody. You can't find anybody in here that you really want to emulate. Isaac is more interested in a tasty meal than he is in God's will. Esau is more concerned about a bowl of stew than he is his own birthright. Rebecca deliberately deceived her husband and encouraged her son to lie. Jacob deceived and takes advantage of his blind father. And yet what I'm really amazed by is that in the midst of this whole soap opera, God sovereignly works out His purpose. Isn't that amazing? All these people have their own agendas. They're trying to do things their way. And in the midst of all this, God comes in and He fulfills the very thing that He said He would fulfill. And in the midst of all this, Isaac has a God moment. He has that moment where he trembles before the Lord. He sobers up and he realizes, wait a minute, God's will is being worked out here and I'm going to put my faith in Him. And he, he comes into Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith as a man who trusted God as he was dying. He didn't receive the promises, but he believed them and passed them on. And he passed them on to Jacob, who is our second illustration in this passage. You don't have to turn back, but in Hebrews chapter 11, 21, it says, By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on his staff. Now, when you evaluate Jacob's life, Jacob had a life that was kind of up and down spiritually. I'm sure that he was aware of God's promise about him that he gave to his mother, and yet he chose to deceive his brother and cheat him out of the birthright. He chose to deceive and lie to his father in order to get the blessing. And you know how Esau responded when he lost out on the blessing? Genesis 27, 41 tells us he was jealous and angry and planned to kill Jacob. If I can kill him, I can get the birthright back. And so Rebekah sent Jacob to Haran to get a wife or really to get away from Esau. And the first night out, Genesis chapter 28 tells us that Jacob went out, he found a nice soft pillow to lay his head on, and he went to sleep, and he had a dream that night. Remember that dream? We call it Jacob's ladder. There was a ladder going up to heaven, and angels were ascending and descending on the ladder. And God was at the top of the ladder, and God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. I will give you the land. I will make you a nation. And in your seed, I will bless all the families of the earth. Wherever you go, I will go with you and I will bring you back. 
Now, he had struggled so much to get the blessing that Esau had. This was the blessing he really needed. This is the blessing he should have really wanted. God appeared to him and blessed him on this occasion. And I find it interesting the way Jacob responded to this. He responds in Genesis 28, and he built a pillar called the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And then he made this vow. He said, if you will be with me and keep me and give me food and clothes and I return to my father's house in safety, then you can be my God. It's not a real act of faith there. You know, God says, I'm unconditionally going to be your God. I'm going to bless you. All these things unconditional. He says conditionally, well, if you'll do these things for me, then you can be my God. And then Jacob went on to Haran, spent 20 years there waiting for Esau to cool down. And while he was there, he learned some important lessons. He learned what it was like to be deceived. He got deceived by his uncle Laban. He worked seven years to get Rachel. And who did he get? Leah. Leah was the oldest daughter. Rachel was the younger. He worked to get the younger. He ended up getting the older. And the Bible tells us that uh, Rachel was beautiful. You know what it says about Leah? It says, Leah's eyes were weak. The literal translation is, Leah was a loser. That, that's the way that reads. So he, he worked to get this this girl that he thought was beautiful and she was wonderful and she was everything he wanted and he ended up with a consolation prize. And he got Rachel, but he had to work another seven years to get her. And then in Genesis 31.3, the Lord told Jacob to return to the land of his fathers. And Jacob did. And in chapter 32, it describes how he came home. It's kind of interesting. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to see what what things were like with Esau. And the messengers came back and said, you know what? Esau is on his way to you and he's got 400 men. And Jacob was frightened by that. And so it tells us that Jacob made a present for Esau. Genesis 32, 13 to 15 tells us he set apart 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He put all these animals in little groups, little herds, with servants watching over them, and they took them one after another to Esau. And every time they got to Esau, they would say, these are a present from your servant Jacob to my lord Esau. So he's got all these presents, one after another, coming to Esau, trying to soften him up before Jacob arrives. And then he divided his company into two parts, and he put one ahead of the other, and he was back here. And his thinking was that if Esau attacks, he may destroy the first company, but the second company that I'm in will be able to escape. And then beyond that, he separated his family. So he's got one company out here. All the presents are going to Esau. And then he's got one company here and then another company here. And then he's got his family here, two wives and 11 kids. And then he's over here across the brook. You see, even though he's come a long way spiritually, he's still a sniveling sissy. So he, he's got all this going on, trying to soften Esau up so that he doesn't get hurt. And you remember what happened when he was over here? 
on the other side of the brook? That's where God wrestled with him all night. And that's where he ended up clinging to God and, and wouldn't let go. And so God touched the socket of his hip and put his hip out of joint and changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Jacob means the one who holds on to Esau's heel. Israel means the one who holds on to God. Jacob means he wrestles with Esau. Israel means he wrestles with God. And so in this course of, of wrestling with God all night, he came into a new relationship with the Lord and got a new name. Now as it turned out, he didn't even need to worry about Esau because when he got to Esau, the Bible tells us in Genesis 33, 4, that Esau saw him and ran to him and embraced him and kissed him and wept. And so they renewed the relationship. And you say, well, I guess he lived happily ever after beyond that. No, he didn't. He was still up and down. In fact, in, in Genesis chapter 34, his daughter gets raped and he acted like a sissy again. He didn't deal with the situation properly. He was up and down. And then finally God speaks to him in Genesis 35, 1. Tells him to go to Bethel and live there. And it says, Jacob put away the foreign gods from his house, went to Bethel, built an altar, and God blessed him. And then when we come to Genesis chapter 48, Jacob is in Egypt. He's about to die. And he blesses Joseph's son, or sons. Now, Joseph was not the firstborn of Jacob. He was the firstborn of Rachel, but he wasn't the firstborn of Jacob. The firstborn of Jacob was Reuben, but 1 Chronicles 5.1 tells us that because he sinned by laying with his father's concubine, the birthright was taken away from Reuben and given to Joseph. In fact, his whole share was taken away. So Joseph really had two shares that went to both of his sons. And so we've got Jacob sitting there and Joseph brings his sons in and, and his sons were Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh was the oldest. And so Joseph arranged them so that Manasseh was by Jacob's right hand, which was the hand of blessing. But when he went to bless them, apparently God had told him to bless the younger because rather than reaching his hands out this way, he crossed his arms and he blessed the younger. And Joseph tried to stop him from doing it and he responded, I know my son, I know. And so we see Jacob in the face of death believing God for his promises and passing them on and worshiping before the Lord. And then the third example is Joseph. Hebrews 11.22 says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Now Joseph was a man whose whole faith, or whole life was an example of faith. And you can pick incidents out of Joseph's life all the way through and he stands out uh, as a man of faith. But it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 chooses to pick the last words of Joseph to be the incident he records in Hebrews chapter 11. And to see that, look at Genesis chapter 50 and verse 24. Joseph is in Egypt and verse 24 says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which He has promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now it's interesting 
that it has been 200 years since God made the promise to Abraham. Now, some people at this point might be saying, you know, it's been 200 years. Surely God's not going to fulfill his promises. But Joseph says, I'm about to die, and God made his promise to Abraham 200 years ago, and God is going to fulfill his promise. And so he says in verse 25, then, Mo then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up with you from here. God's going to fulfill that. Even though we're out of the land, we're down here in Egypt, God's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And when he does, and when you go back to the land, I want you to swear that you're going to take my bones. And then verse 26 says, So Joseph died at the age of 110, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Did Joseph's bones ever make it to the promised land? Yeah. If you read Exodus 13, 19, you'll find that when Moses led the people out of Egypt, he took the bones of Joseph with him. And so we see Joseph believing that God was going to keep his promise and confident in the face of death. And so here in Hebrews 11, 20-22, we see three examples of men who believed God in the face of death, who exercised faith when they were dying. And really, isn't that the acid test of faith? We can talk about faith all the time, but when it comes time to face our greatest human enemy, death. The real question is, is your faith going to hold up in the face of death? Are you ready to die? You know, people ask me a lot of times, if you know, they, they say, well, I'm sorry about your dad, and it must be hard to deal with the fact that your dad is gone. And, and personally, I really expected to grieve more than I did. I have not grieved for my dad. I have not cried about my dad. I, I, and I think about it, and I, you know, he lived his whole life getting ready to die. And really, he was somebody, as I said earlier, who when it came time to die, all he had to do was die. So w when you watch somebody live their life in view of eternity, and they go into the presence of the Lord, there isn't a whole lot to cry about because they lived their life getting ready to be a person who, died, who knew how to have faith in the face of death. heard about a fellow who uh, had a serious automobile accident and there was some question about whether he was going to live or not. While he was contemplating his possible death, he told his wife that he wanted one word on his tombstone. She said, what's that? He said, one word, I want the word vacant. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's someone who was confident in the face of death. What is my grave going to be about? It's going to be about vacant. I'm not really here. This is just my uh, body. This is my temporary tent that they laid in the ground here. I'm at home with the Lord. Are you a person who lives by faith? Are you a person who's ready to die? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for these three examples of individuals who live their lives by faith, who, who in the point or the face of death really stood up and counted for you. And Lord, as we look at them, we realize there's a lot of difference in these individuals. There are some of these guys that we really don't want to emulate. 
And there are other like, others like Joseph that, that we want to follow the details of their lives, and yet we realize, Father, that when it came time to die, they were people who trusted your promises with confidence and passed on those promises to others. And Father, I pray that you would just challenge us right now. It really doesn't matter where we've been in life. It really doesn't matter what we've done up until today. But Father, we would ask you to make us men and women, boys and girls of faith today who really walk with you by faith so that whenever your time comes for us to go home, that we'll have nothing left to do but come home. We thank you for the privilege of being able to say that because of our confidence in Jesus Christ. In his worthy name we pray. Amen.